0: As we continue our studies in the Gospel of Luke, would you uh, please uh, look on with me as I read from Luke chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 26 to 56. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfil his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humblest state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home.
1: Thanks for that reading, Eric. Uh, let me add my welcome to Nick's. If you are new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here and we're uh, moving through Luke's gospel, or at least Luke 1 to 5 in this first term. Um, and as we uh, look at this passage that's just been read for us, there's a bit of an outline on the back of the bulletin that may be um, helpful as we uh, think through um, what the prophecies about Christ's birth mean for us as we reflect on today. So let me pray for us now, asking that God will really help us as we uh, wrestle with his word together. Please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, your Son, uh, that you have granted us your Spirit uh, who convicts us and challenges us, implying your word to our hearts and minds, and we pray that you might be at work in us tonight, uh, helping us to not only understand um, these predictions of Christ's uh, reign, uh, but also that we might respond rightly to them, that you would give us wills to respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I was to say to you the phrase, great empires, what would you think of? Perhaps you'd think of the Roman Empire, uh, which is seen by many as one of the most enduring in our world. Um, Historians argue a little bit about when the the clock began ticking for the Roman Empire, but most would say 27 BC, when a politician named Octavian uh, overthrew the Roman Republic and made himself Caesar, Caesar Augustus, as he titled himself Of course, uh, the barbarians did come down from the north, the Germanic tribes in the 5th century, and the western half of the empire was then destroyed. But the eastern half that had been established with its base in Constantinople, what we know as Turkey today, kept going on and on. In fact, it wasn't until 1453 that Constantinople finally fell. And if you like, the entire uh, remnant of the Roman Empire had ended. That's a, a period of dominance of 1,500 years. Well, perhaps you'd think of the Mongol Empire, uh, much more short-lived, uh, but had the biggest continuous land area ever in one empire, it existed in the 13th and 14th century and was brought to life by the infamous Genghis Khan. Of course, it started in Mongolia in Central Asia and spread out from there, and eventually it would go all the way from Europe to the Sea of Japan, uh, northwards into Siberia, uh, south into the Indian subcontinent, into Indochina right across to Iran and Arabia in the west. And it emerged from 1206 when Genghis was made the the sole ruler of the Mongol Empire. And it expanded so rapidly because he and his descendants just sent invasion after invasion in every direction, uh, expanding their borders. Until by the time his great-grandson, Kublai Khan, who was almost as famous, died in 1294. They had taken that huge landmass that you see on the map. And it would unwind in the years that that followed and break down as it became four separate kingdoms. Uh, But it was a powerful kingdom. Now, I think when we think of leaders of such empires like an Augustus Caesar or Genghis Khan, uh, we realize the impact they had on their own people, but also on huge uh, areas of the world as they imposed their culture on other population groups, sometimes even moved vast populations around as suited them and transported people here and there. But as you read Luke 1 and you understand the sweep of the Bible, you see that even these most powerful empires that we can spend ages studying in ancient history are really footnotes in history compared to the impact of this baby that was promised, the Christ. Now, of course, the word Christ means the anointed one or the king. And so here was a promised king that had been foretold for centuries in the nation of Israel. And so as we think about uh, the impact of this one who's promised, I want us to reflect tonight on this big question, what impact will the promised king have? What impact will this promised king have on our lives, indeed on the whole world? And that brings me to the first point, point one on your outline. Point one, his kingdom will trump all kingdoms. So notice again what was written from verse 30 as Luke records this interaction with angel, the angel and Mary. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, see, here we learn the significance of this child that would be born. Here is the long-awaited son of David. And he will reign just as his descendant had earlier in Israel's history. Now, it might seem on first reading of a little section like that, that, well, this is just a description like any other earthly king. He's going to be great. He's going to have a throne and reign. Yes, we've seen it before. But notice the exalted titles that are used in this section, which make him a very different king. Son of the Most High, verse 32. Later in verse 35, Son of God. And so the references here make, it us, make us aware this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary promised king. And not only is this baby going to be very different, but he's going to have a kingdom that won't ever end, verse Verse 33. I mean, his great descendant, King David, was a famous ruler and he had reigned for a long time in that day, a thousand years before Christ. For 40 years he'd been on the throne. But 40 years, you know, it's a blink of an eye, isn't it, in comparison to a reign that goes on and on forever. I mean, see, this is a promise to David being fulfilled. You know, a thousand years earlier, God had said to King David uh, the following words in 2 Samuel seven sixteen. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. I think sometimes uh, we might read that initially in 2 Samuel and think, oh, well, God's just promising that there'll always be another one, another son grandson in this line of David, and there'll always be somebody on the throne. But of course, um, the northern kingdom has been smashed um, by the Assyrians, and 500 years after David, almost uh, the southern kingdom that he had ruled from Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The people were taken away into exile. And sure, they came back to the land, but they were never kings in the likeness of David again. They were puppet kings at best. There were other empires that ruled them. They were nobodies from that point on. So how can it be that uh, a reign would continue through the line of David forever? It seemingly, in earthly terms, came to an end. But you see... Christ's kingdom is different. It is a kingdom that will trump all kingdoms. In fact, when you read in the book of Daniel in chapter 2, it mentions four kingdoms um, and then repeats them in chapters 7 and 8. And it's indicative of the the times um, of that era that um, the vision comes to King Nebuchadnezzar, who is then the supreme commander of Babylon. It is the superpower of the day. And what he's told in his dream is that his kingdom is going to be overturned and the Persians will be in control pretty soon. But after them, the Greek empire will come, and the Persians will be no more. And after the Greeks, then the Roman empire, one empire after another, surpassing the other. Human kingdoms end. Uh, they're forgotten. But Christ's kingdom, we're told, will be eternal. This is a kingdom that is so different. And here is the son of David, the one who has been promised, who will reign forever. Now I think that causes us uh, to pause and reflect, what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? How can this be? How do we compare it to what we know of the empires of this world? Well, it's very clear as Jesus is born and then his life unfolds that his kingdom will be much unlike what we've known. In fact, Jesus was about to usher in his kingdom and his reign as he died on the cross. His coronation was to be executed on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's a very unlikely way to establish your kingdom. But just before that happened, he spoke to the Roman governor of the day in Jerusalem, Pilate. Pilate spoke to him about his kingship and the nature of his kingdom, and he said some very interesting words. Jesus says to Pilate in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. See, in speaking this way, Jesus is acknowledging clearly that he's a king, but he's defining his kingship in different terms. Sure, he will reign, but it's not over a territory. It's not like he needs to take hold of some land in a way that would offend the Romans who were controlling at that time. The contrast is really clear. He notes that if he were a pretender to an earthly kingdom, he'd have followers with swords. Jesus goes on to explain himself in verse 37, where he says he acknowledges that he came into the world as the king, a king who testifies to the truth. In this context, Jesus is meaning more than intellectual uh, truth. He's saying he's revealing God the Father. He is truth. He discloses the truth of God, of the salvation that he will offer, that will be through him, the Son. See, the way that Jesus makes subjects in his kingdom is to have them place their faith in him, to voluntarily come under his rule. Now, as I've already mentioned, Jesus' death and resurrection actually establishes his kingdom. And it's from that point that he rules over his people. But he does so through his word as his followers submit themselves to his teaching. His kingdom grows and it's been added to day by day for 2,000 years. Now, I think if you were to speak to somebody who's not trusting in Jesus today, they'll say, where is this invisible kingdom? How does it compare to these things you're talking about from the past? If it exists at all, surely it's small like a mustard seed. I don't see its impact. The impact is huge. And one day, as Daniel's prophecies say, all earthly kingdoms will end. and Christ will return in all his power and glory and his kingdom will be clearly seen in all its majesty and all other earthly things will fade away. As unopposed, he rules that which is rightly his. And that brings me to a second point. Point two on your outline. He will overturn the status quo. Now, if this is true, if this child that will be born will rule over a kingdom that will trump everything that's ever been seen, what kind of rule will this king have? Will it be any different to the people that lorded it over others in the past? Well, notice how um, this question begins to be answered from verse 34 as Mary asks some questions. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin... The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word of God will ever fail. So here we have the virgin birth explained, if only tantalizingly briefly, Mary's naturally taken aback in verse 34. She knows that she's only betrothed or engaged in our terms today to Joseph. She is a virgin. She's being told that she is going to bear the Son of God. And I think as much as announcing the arrival of Christ, the angel is sent to reassure her that this is part of God's unfolding plan, that she can trust God with what is about to happen, that she will be swept up in. You know, it's really the end of the whole line of promises of this Christ who will come that stretch back 700 years. See, the Jews knew back in Micah 5, chapter 2, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, that there would be one who would be born, the Christ child in Bethlehem. They knew where the child would be born. Isaiah 7, 100 years later, 600 years before Christ, we're told that a virgin will be with child And it will be a male child who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so as these events unfold and now come to completion in the life of Mary, she has all this context to go on. And indeed, she responds with amazing faith and trust in God's plan. But I don't know if you've ever thought closely about this section and realized that there's a far greater miracle than the virgin birth here. And that is the incarnation that God the creator of all things, the sustainer of our universe with just his word would come and enter into our world, take on our flesh and blood, be born as a helpless baby in our world. The virgin birth is rightly viewed as a miraculous event, but there is something even greater here to grasp. God in human form, taking on our mortal bodies. Here is the eternal son, still fully God, but now also fully man. Incarnation, God and man meeting in the birth of Jesus to Mary. Now, Back in 2010, uh, in February of that year, my wife Christine and I went to see the movie Avatar. Uh, it stars, of course, the Australian actor Sam Worthington. And the reason we went to see it in a rush was we were going to meet Sam Worthington, we knew, the following day. I was conducting a wedding of a friend of his, and we'd heard that he would be at the wedding. We thought, well, gee, we should at least see the movie, so we can, if we get a chance to chat to him, we can sound somewhat knowledgeable. And um, we went along to the movie. And of course, it's a fictitious one. It's, it's way in the future, in the 22nd century. It's all about this uh, distant planet with this indigenous people called the Na'vi, and how Sam Worthington, in his character Jake Scully, has meant to infiltrate their society. He's going to be um, Change so that he'll be a hybrid, humoured Navi, he'll be able to look like them, become part of their society. He's really sent so that he might spy, but as he gets to know them and sees their amazing superhuman skills, he actually comes to love their society and eventually wanting to defend it, indeed even lay down his life for them. Having become like them, he wants to save them. You see, in the arrival of Jesus to this world, him taking on our flesh, the Son of God, leaves all the glories of heaven to come to the struggles of this earth, to be like us, to face what we do. Living amongst us, he would freely choose to lay down his life in our place, bearing our sin, dying as our substitute, that we might have an opportunity forgiven to be back in right relationship with God. See, not only does he establish his reign and his kingdom through his death and resurrection, it's also through that same means that he offers forgiveness to people, people in desperate need of a rescuer too. And one day uh, that kingdom, as I said, will be seen in all its glory and the amazing work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection that followed will also be fully appreciated. But that brings us to Mary's response. I mean, if these astounding promises are true, then the words that she then goes into an outburst of praise about are significant because they tell us something not only of her own understanding of God's unfolding plan, but also of the nature of this king who will be born. So notice from verse 46 to 56, we get Mary's um, uh, magnificent, as it's called in the Catholics, uh, magnifies, the first word in the Latin, that you often have glorify now in the modern translations. And so she, first of all, she praises God because of the favor that God has shown her. Who is she? A teenage girl in a backwater area of the Roman Empire and nobody from a poor background, and she will be the one who will bear God's son, that through him the whole world will have an opportunity of salvation. And so there's this amazing sense of God's grace shown to her, how she will be called blessed because of the way God has involved her in his plans. But when you get to verse 50, it shifts away. She takes the lens back, and it's not just focusing on Mary and what God's going to do in her life, but rather she looks out at the whole world, as it were. From verse 50, she talks about how those who fear God will be impacted by this one who will be born. Now the God-fearers that she speaks about in verse 50 are actually Gentile people. That was a way of referring throughout the New Testament to those who were not Jews but had learnt to place their faith or were coming to faith in the God of Israel. And so suddenly Luke is showing how important this is to his Gentile readers as they read through this gospel that they're caught up in this plan of God as well. And as she gets further down towards the end of the section in verses 54 and 55, she hones in on God's old covenant people of Israel as well and says how, well, this is the fulfillment of promises made way back to Abraham. And now centuries and centuries later are finding their fulfillment in this one who will be born. And there's this wonderful theme, whether in the first section about herself or the second section about the world around her, The great theme that runs the thread right through all of this is how God does things differently, how he has an upside-down kingdom, how he will overturn the status quo. It's all about how God will exalt the weak, the poor, the humble, and how he will bring down the proud and the rich. So we're so used to looking at our world where those who have the power, those who have the money, those who have celebrity, they dominate. We hear only about them. They act like Pilate the governor or Caesar Augustus and they lord it over others and the attention is drawn to them. Mary says things will change. As this king is born, God will express his mercy and it will not only issue in redemption to people, but it will issue in justice. This will be a king who will reign differently. It won't be about the rich and powerful. God's going to deliver this upending kingdom through Jesus? Well, does it happen? I mean, as Jesus is born and his life unfolds and his three years of ministry then take place in Israel, do we see somebody that speaks differently as a king? Well, yes, I put it to you, we do. It's just so radically different that the people that he spoke to in that day were shocked Over and over again, even the people of Israel who thought they knew about the Christ and what it would be like when he came cannot believe the way he acts and speaks. One example, Luke 18, verses 29 and 30. I mean, Jesus summarizes in this key passage what any follower of his should be like, what they should view their lives as in in his upside-down kingdom. There was great cost in following Jesus in the first century as indeed there is for many people today. and Jesus calls them to count the cost here. Notice how he speaks to them. Truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. You now, in the parallel passage in Matthew 19, he adds... And those who are first in this life will be last. And those who are now last will be first in the kingdom to come. Up ends this world. Maybe you've seen something of the cost yourself. Maybe you're a believer here tonight for whom you have left family behind or rather they've rejected you because you have become a Christian. You're following Christ. Maybe you've lost friendships uh, because of your desire to follow your new king. Maybe you've given up a particular job or career direction because you've got new priorities now as a believer. Maybe there's been a real marked change. On the flip side, maybe at times as a result, you've caught yourself feeling envious of those who uh, friends who don't seem to care for anything, who are simply living for now in this world. It's a kingdom where they're in charge of. They only do what they want. They seem to have no qualms about it, such decisions or thinking. Some of the disciples struggled with that in Jesus' day. They said to him on the back of these comments, but you know, Jesus, we've, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus says, don't worry about that. This life is fleeting. Following me has far greater purpose and reward. Many who are first now will be last then, last on that great day when Christ comes in all his glory. You know, there's a story that's told of a missionary couple uh, who'd been serving in Africa for 40 years, four decades, and given their life to service and sharing the good news. They were returning back home, they were Americans to the United States after all that time, Uh, to retire and to settle back again. And they just happened to be on the same ship returning from Africa as the then President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. He'd been to Africa too on a big game hunt, which had been very successful. He'd killed many animals. And there he was being greeted by thousands upon thousands of people at the pier lining up to see the President as he returned to American soil and hear about his great stories. Scores of journalists there to get the first comment from him as he stepped off the ship. There was a whole parade through the city in his honour in the days that followed. But for this couple, as they stepped off the ship, not one person met them. As they took a taxi back to their hotel, the husband was struck by the contrast and was cut up about that and was saying to his wife, you know, it, it just doesn't seem fair. And we've given our life in service, but it's as if nobody knows. Nobody cares. Once they reflected and prayed about it that night, God seemed to say to them, you know the reason that you haven't received any reward or adulation here? It's because you're not home yet. This is not your home. You see, God's way is not the world's way. People will line up for the rich and important, for the animals they've shot. But they may not come to praise those who are sharing the good news. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And I want to reflect on our final point now as we apply these themes a bit further to our own lives. Point three, the king's impact on us. The king's impact on us. See, I think all of this leads us to the point of, well, if this... Christ who was born is king and he reigns over such a kingdom. And if I claim to have placed my trust in him, am I truly living under his kingship? You know, Jesus said that a disciple would choose him over everything. To enter his kingdom, they must give up all things. It's like the treasure in a field, he said. You would sell everything you had to buy that one field where the treasure was. Or it's the pearl of great price. And everything you owned in this world would be given away so that you could have this one thing, everything given up for Christ. And so the question is, have we truly given our life over to him? Are we really following him? Or are we still running our own little kingdom, as it were, next to his? as if we're still in charge, fussing around in our own little area as if we're really in control, barely submitting to the one that we claim to know. I don't know if you read on Friday, but uh, the ABC website uh, was pointing out another faux pas from our Prime Minister. Um, He snubbed a royal invitation. But don't worry, this one's not likely to cause a diplomatic incident. Um, Yesterday, many oceans away from Buckingham Palace, uh, Prince Leonard the self-declared sovereign of the Principality of Hutt River, uh, gave up his throne. If you've never heard of the Hutt River Principality, you're not alone. Uh, He's a former grain wheat farmer um, who seceded his farm from Australia in 1970 over a dispute about wheat quotas. You see, the WA government at the time uh, was trying to set quotas to deal with some supply issues and they were threatening to resume lands for those that wouldn't come on board. Well, he was most upset and decided that he would exercise what he called his international law entitlements to form a self-preservation government. And so for the last 47 years, he has styled himself as Prince Leonard. he has issued his own currency, his own stamps. Indeed, you might have missed it, but he even declared war on Australia at one point. (laughs) And after almost five decades on the throne... Um, He was saying uh, yesterday that it would be a mental relief to hand over his principality uh, to his son, of course, Prince Graham. Now, um, uh, this principality is about 500 kilometres north of Perth, and they issued an open invitation to anyone important to come to the abdication ceremony yesterday. The PM was invited, uh, the Premier of WA. They got a number of knockbacks, but they were expecting 150 people to turn up to their farm, even still. Now... I mean, I guess it's a bit of a joke. We love sort of, I guess, in our larrikin spirit in Australia, this uh, rejection of authority at some level. Uh, But there is a serious side to it. Uh, Last week, the federal government issued him with a writ um, saying that he owes $2.6 million in tax. Um, It's a battle that his son Graham says he's going to take up when he ascends to the throne. I'm going to contend that, he said, we'll be entering our plea and putting in paperwork to the court this week. Well, the main problem is the ATO has got an issue with uh, their souvenir shop. Uh, so you can buy their stamps or their currency. Uh, they can stamp your passport that you've been to another country. And uh, they, they even sell stubby holders. Uh, but they haven't been paying any GST on any of these things <laughs> that they've been selling. And so the government's unhappy. Look, it's a, it's a story of self-autonomy, isn't it? Uh, one that our federal government's largely treated as a joke until this tax issue. But I put it to you... It's a little microcosm of each person in the world in the sense of our desire for self-rule. There's a great funny side to it, but there's also a serious side to it where there's an unreality where he assumes that he's in charge, that he's his own sovereign, his own king. Of course, he's nothing of the sort. And in the same way, people go around believing that they are really in charge. They have rejected Christ's authority, the true king, and they style themselves as the one who really is in control. Look, let me say to you this evening, while we live under two kingdoms, as it were, at this time, under those governments and rulers that are put in place by God, but truly being under Christ's rule, our king, if we've truly placed our trust in him, There are two things that we just have to prioritise. The first of them is this. If you've made that step of following Jesus, then you have to give up on your little kingdom. You've got to give up on it. You can't pursue that any longer, whether that's at your workplace or in your family or even here at church. We need to acknowledge that Christ truly is in charge and get off his throne. Jesus didn't lay down his life to have people that would follow him occasionally. We're to submit our lives totally under his lordship. There's not an area of your life that doesn't come under his realm. Christ's kingdom is the sort of thing that you must give up everything for, that wrong relationship, that job or career path that's taking you away from your faith in God. That possession that's just all consuming for you, that's become your idol, and if you lost it, you'd know how big an idol it was. That hobby that gives you no time to read the Bible or spend time with God's people or pray because, well, it's most important. I want to ask you have you given yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus, your King? It's an eternal kingdom. And he's truly in charge. Well, have you still got a foot in two worlds? There's a second thing. Secondly, if these things are true, then we need to tell people about the need to submit to Jesus before it's too late. You know, this king who laid down his life is also going to return in his glory and he's going to judge all people. And at that point, it's too late. Time's up. The opportunity to enter his kingdom has gone. I don't know if you remember back on Friday the 13th of um, January 2012, uh, there was that Italian cruise ship, the Costa Concordia, um, that struck rocks off the coast of Italy um, near Tuscany. It did so about 9.42pm in the evening. And what followed was 68 minutes of unforgivable delay. You see, the captain of the ship and his crew were in denial. They rejected help from the Italian Coast Guard. They pretended like there was no problem. The captain even ordered dinner for himself at 10.30pm for him and his female companion. Sadly, this world too is like a crippled ship. Time is running out. 33 people died because of his failure to act. And we can sometimes live like this, trying to do life in our own strength until at last it's too late. There's no time left. Death is upon us. The stakes are so high. the rejection of this king, the failure to enter his kingdom, what's a question of eternal life or eternal death? And if you don't know where you stand tonight with King Jesus, I want to plead with you to consider again to talk with somebody about that, maybe a trusted Christian friend that you've come with. I'm happy to talk to you, certainly, or Joel. Give you a Bible if you haven't got one, to read the four biographies of Jesus' life and to think hard about this one who came, not only as a ruler, but as a servant king who laid down his life for you. But if you have already trusted in Jesus. I want to come back to that question that we began with. What is the impact of this king? Or rather, let's change the question and say, what should the impact of this king be on your life? I think we've already seen tonight that he reigns over a kingdom that trumps all other kingdoms. The passing things of these worlds are just no comparison. He's a ruler who will reign for all time. Indeed, he is somebody who will overturn the status quo, who calls you to follow him, having laid down his life for you first, who will raise up the humble and poor, who makes much of those who seem little in this world, but who recognizes the one who is truly important. And time is running out to enter his kingdom. And it's time now to live for our king, if if that's who he is in our life. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the astounding prophecies of Christ's birth given by the angel, we see something that would then unfold in the life and death and resurrection of Christ which changes this world once and for all. This was no ordinary child, no ordinary king. This is no ordinary kingdom that he rules. Our Lord, we pray that you might help, to, help us to see our life in true perspective, that we'd understand what you have done for us in Christ, and that we may truly bow the knee before him. Lord, it's such a privilege to know your plans, to be included in them, Help us to live as those who are truly responding to the Lordship of our Saviour. For we ask it in his name. Amen.